Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and my guest today is Dr. Emeryn Mayer. Dr. Mayer is a distinguished professor of medicine at the Oppenheimer Center for the Neurobiology of Stress and Resilience at UCLA. He is a gastroenterologist, neuroscientist, and expert on topics related to gut health and the microbiome. His last book was titled The Mind-Gut Connection, How the Hidden Conversation Within Our Bodies Impacts Our Mood, Our Choices, and Our Health. His latest book builds on this and is titled The Gut-Immune Connection. Dr. Mayer and I discussed a range of topics related to obesity and metabolic disease, hunger and food intake, diet and fasting, and how all of these things are related to our microbiome, the world of microorganisms, of bacteria and other things that actually live inside our bodies and interact with our metabolism to impact our health. I think there's a lot of stuff that people will find interesting in this podcast related to dieting and eating, related to general health and wellness topics, all centered around what we are learning about the microbiome. As always, if you enjoy the content on this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. You can like or download the audio-only version of the podcast on any major podcast directory. You can also watch a video version of the podcast on YouTube, so I encourage you to also like and subscribe there. And if you want to support the podcast further, you can become a patron on Patreon for as little as $2 per month. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist an all-natural cannabis company specializing in dose-controlled cannabis products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Mayer. Professor Emeryn Mayer, thank you for joining me. Well, thanks, Nick, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast. Yeah, we are excited to have you. This is going to be a really interesting set of topics, I think. Can you tell everyone just to start who you are, what you do, and what your new book is about? So um, I've been a professor at UCLA for um, many years, decades, um, and um I'm a gastroenterologist by training and a neuroscientist in my in my research part. I've sort of combined gastroenterology with neuroscience in studying the brain-gut interactions or brain-gut microbiome interactions. And um, um, yeah, so I've been interested in this topic my entire career, uh, initially prior to the microbiome science exploding. Um, but this is just, I've just added that component now to my longstanding uh, research and concepts about uh, the importance of that system. So, um, yeah, and I've just um, just about to publish my second book, uh, The Gut Immune Connection. The first one was The Mind-Gut Connection, which um, was sort of at the beginning of, of our interest in um, linking the the microbiome with the brain and the nervous system and um, psychiatric diseases. Um, Now the new book is, takes uh, a significant step further. I mean, a lot has happened in those five years in terms of the science goes, Um, but also I take, um, create this concept of the, um, um, the one health concept that essentially the, the health of our 
of our gut, our gut microbiome, our brain, um, is part of the health of the soil microbiome, um, the health of the plants, and ultimately the health of the planet. So it, it takes a much more global um, perspective on this. Yeah, I think this is this is a fascinating area that I've been hearing a lot more coverage of in the media and in the research world. This idea that the health of our gut and our microbiome is linked to what our immune system is doing, is linked to what our brain's doing. And it seems like a fascinating area that I actually don't know too much about. One of the basic things I wanted to ask you about in the beginning has to do with setting up the problem in some sense. So it certainly seems like people are basically getting unhealthier with time. When you look at things like obesity rates and different metabolic diseases like diabetes, for example, it seems like these things are going up and I'm pretty sure that they've been going up for a long time. But can you give us a sense for some of the statistics here? How, how have things like obesity and diabetes and related issues changed over the past few decades and what kind of healthcare burden is actually there right now? Yeah, so you're absolutely correct. I mean, we, as a population, we have gotten sicker. Um, the what the the healthcare system or really the disease care system has done, um, it's it's been very successful in keeping us from dying. So our life expectancy and longevity, you know, has been increasing, but only with the help of massive interventions of, um, you know pharmaceuticals and um, seems now, you know, with metabolic diseases that um, almost 100% of men over 60, you know, should be on a statin based on the, the criteria that have been established. So it's almost become the norm that, um, that we're metabolically unhealthy, um, particularly when we age. <clears throat> and sort of people have been obsessed really with the longevity aspect, you know, it's, it's always being celebrated. Uh, that longevity has increased in our society. Everybody now has friends or relatives who have lived in their hundreds, which was, you know, when I grew up, kind of unthinkable, really. Um, but if you if you really look at the the cost of that uh, accomplishment, it's it's tremendous, and it's uh, you know it, it it means good business for the pharmaceutical industry and also for the healthcare industry, uh, which is. As, as I said, it's a disease care industry, very good in um, in keeping people alive and doing all kinds of uh, ever increasing, e increasingly expensive tests. Um, but ultimately, it's not making us healthier, and and that applies both to, I would say, physical health and and mental health. Uh, so mm -hmm. we have a, you know, a mental health uh, epidemic with. Um, uh, you know, increasing suicide rates, particularly amongst younger people, um, increase in depression. Depression is projected to be one of the main or the main uh, health issue in the next um, couple of decades. Um, substance abuse, addiction um, is is obviously killing more more people than most other diseases. And then we have this this epidemic of um, what's been called these chronic non-infectious uh, diseases, which include, uh, you know, all the metabolic diseases and the consequences, cardiovascular disease, uh, 
some forms of cancer like colon cancer, neurodegenerative diseases. Um, and those, those diseases are, it's kind of interesting. They're really not separate from each other. You know, we, we, in the medical system, we try to divide them up into all these categories that sent people are sent to different experts. Um, you know, for colon cancer, you go to the gastroenterologist for, um, Alzheimer's disease, you go to uh, <clears throat> to a neurologist, but in reality, when you look at it, I mean, they're all linked together. So the the, the metabolic um, derangements that have happened, uh, and I would say you could say in the last, you know, plus minus seventy five years since World War II, really, there's if you look at the curves, have been an increase in 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 all these diseases, uh, some faster than others. Some of the most rapid ones, um, and and part of that increase has been influenced by the changing definition. So, like autism spectrum, for example, has had a dramatic increase um, um, in 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 the last um, you know forty fifty years, but it also has undergone different um, definitions and classifications. So it's hard to say what the actual rate of increase is. Um, and, and some of these diseases have increased like um, Parkinson's and um, Alzheimer's disease. They're, they're sort of blamed on the increasing age and increasing life expectancy. But in reality, you know, it's, it's not a necessary uh, consequence of getting older that you have an increased risk for Alzheimer's disease. It's, it's again, the, the metabolic derangements that people live with that makes that more likely that more and more people develop those diseases. And um, yeah, I would say, you know, um, it's an epidemic of chronic diseases that we are experiencing. It's, uh, this has been overshadowed clearly by the pandemic much more acute and, um, you know, visible problem that, um, you know, we have been, incredibly, the medical system, incredibly effective in coming up with a solution with, with the vaccinations. But again, I mean, those, those pandemics are, in some ways, you can link them to, the, to this chronic disease epidemic as well, because people that have any of those uh, chronic diseases um, have been more vulnerable to develop uh, a more severe course of the COVID-19 Mm. Uh, infection and are more likely to develop um, um, the, like the long COVID complication um, and a, a disproportionate number of, 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 of people that have more of these comorbid conditions. So they go comorbid conditions, which I really, you know, is hiding um, the fact that there, there, there are these, um, this network of interconnected diseases and the reason it's important is because the reason these diseases are interconnected with each other is um, the dramatic change in, in lifestyle that has occurred since World War II, mm -hmm. and particularly the diet. You know, so something not just diet, there's interactions of other factors as well, um, like decreased exercise, uh, you know, um, chemicals in our environment and, and, and many other things. But uh, I, I think diet has received the most attention in this. And, you know, we can talk about this, how that links 
these increasing diseases um, um, with each other, uh, but also you know with with uh, with our lifestyle. So, mm -hmm. so so there's this chronic disease epidemic, and there's many different chronic diseases that have been going up over time. It sounds to me that there's a few different things I'm hearing here. It's almost like a a perfect storm of of various things where our lifestyles are in general leading to an increase in various chronic diseases. That's obviously bad because nobody wants a disease of any kind, but a chronic disease is also one by definition that you're going to be living with for a long time. And it seems to me the, that there's also a problem there, which is these things are sort of slowly developing. So they're almost less noticeable as an epidemic. It's not something like COVID where, you know, one day we all of a sudden more or less had this brand new problem that was right in front of us. But these sort of chronic diseases have slowly crept up steadily over time. And in some ways, you almost don't even notice that we're in the middle of such an epidemic. So, and, so and you know, and, and they're being normalized. Like, uh, you know, you notice, mm -hmm. for example, so, you know, with, with obesity, for example, you know, if you look at images from the, uh, you know, from the, from the 50s in, in the U.S., and images today, um, you know, it's it's obviously apparent that people, the, the average is, has greatly increased uh, in uh, mm -hmm. obesity rates. And it's being normalized because, you know, the media want to want to be, want to send a message that it's, they don't want to exclude anybody with mm -hmm. obesity. So like now in the news and the advertisements, you always see, obese people, you know, as uh, even <clears throat> with the pharmaceutical ads, you know, that uh, promote like statins or medications for high blood pressure or, or blood lipids um, or, or diabetes, you don't see, um, you know, slim people. They're, they're always obese. And it's it's almost shown like the new normal. And I think it's a very dangerous trend. You know, the media want to be politically correct. You don't want to discriminate anybody with obesity. I don't care about the cosmetic aspect of obesity. As a physician and scientist, I care about the metabolic uh, implications. And that should not be normalized. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's just not. So I actually have, I have heard people in the media make claims in some cases directly that you know being overweight or obese is not actually unhealthy so can i just want you to be very clear is that true at all um it's it's not true i mean there's not a 100% link between <clears throat> obesity and metabolic disease for example um many asian populations like in china um, you know, have people have metabolic syndrome, but are not obese, um, and and that's a particularly dangerous situation because you don't even have any external warnings, signals mm. that something is going wrong. Um, but in general, I think in in the U.S. population, um, and I often say this when I give a talk, you know, somewhere in the country where, um, like in in the middle of the country where you see more obese people than on the coasts. Um, I, I often tell the audience, you know, 40% in this room probably have a metabolic disturbance. Um, maybe not full-blown metabolic syndrome, but um, you're on the way towards that and with all its implications for higher risk of chronic disease. So I would say 
in Western populations in the US, there's, there's, there's a pretty good correlation between um, obesity, definitely once it gets to, I mean, overweight is a, is a sort of a, a heterogeneous group of people. There's many healthy people that are somewhat overweight. Um, mm -hmm. But in general, people who develop like type 2 diabetes or metabolic syndrome are overweight and obese. One of the things I want to talk about up front too is hunger and food intake. Um, it's simultaneously something that everyone's very familiar with because we all get hungry and we all eat. But at the same time, there's a lot more going on there than probably meets the eye for most people. So as a neuroscientist, what is hunger at a high level and how is it actually regulated by certain key parts of the brain and body in a normal, healthy individual? Yeah, so um, hunger is, is a sensation, um, you know, a basic emotion that um, um, makes sure that we fulfill the metabolic needs of the body. Um, and normally this has been, is fairly tightly regulated um, that, um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a release of a hormone in the stomach called ghrelin <clears throat> that um, stimulates appetite and makes people want to eat. It's really the only um, hormone produced in the GI tract that stimulates appetite. All the other ones are <clears throat> actually uh, counter-regulatory, so they create satiety to make you stop eating. Uh, there's also insulin, you know, increased insulin levels will stimulate um, um, appetite or even craving. Um, but in terms of, if you say with, with the GI tract, so ghrelin gets to the brain, gets into uh, reward areas, um, um, stimulates the release of dopamine, uh, you know, which is a motivational um, um, neurotransmitter, um, and that stimulates uh, ingestive behavior. In a normal situation, a healthy individual that triggers that you know food intake, um, food intake will go down <clears throat> through this in, into the small intestine, into the large intestine, and even in the uh, you know so the end of the small intestine, and then there's a series of cells in the GI tract that have hormones that. Um, are called anorexogenic hormones. So they, they turn off the appetite and the hunger and um, they're stored there in, you know, what we call endocrine cells, enteroendocrine cells in the, in the gut. And they're being released when they come in uh, contact with food that you ingest. Uh, they get into the bloodstream, but they also act on the vagus nerve and then send a signal to the brain and they counteract the, um, the orexogenic signals like ghrelin or insulin. So it's, it's, um, it's a feedback loop that normally works really well. So if you, you know, have a, a satiating meal, uh, your appetite will turn off. Um, and what we have learned that these cells in the gut that produce these uh, anorexogenic signals, these satiety signals, they have receptors on the surface that respond to signals from the microbes. Hmm. Uh, such as, you know, short-chain fatty acids um, um, or secondary bile acids and, and several other metabolites. <clears throat> so the microbes play a big role in this. Um, and 
you know, not by coincidence, changes in the microbial composition and abundance has been identified in people with obesity and people with, you know, what's been called food addiction, essentially where this craving for food becomes independent of the metabolic needs. Um, so this uncoupling between the metabolic needs of the body that need to, that need to be satiated <clears throat> and appetite and craving is a hallmark of the current obesity um, epidemic. So it sounds like the gut and the brain communicate through multiple channels. One of them is through the nervous system directly. So something like the vagus nerve is directly connecting the central nervous system and the gut to determine you know, what, what's going on in the gut at any given moment. There's also an endocrine connection. So there's hormones that get released from the gut into the bloodstream that go up to the brain. And in general, we can think about those as being either pro-hunger or pro-satiety signals. So something like ghrelin is basically going through the blood up to the brain and telling the brain, okay, we need food, orchestrate behavior accordingly. And then there's counteracting signals that do the opposite. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then there's, you know, um, these, these inhibitory mechanisms that, that normally would control a, um, a healthy food intake <clears throat> are compromised a, because, you know, um, microbes can play a role in, um, in, in excessively stimulating these um, um, no, I shouldn't say this if in, 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 in not sufficiently stimulating these, these enteroendocrine cells. Um, but there's also a component which has to do with, with um, the microbes playing a role in generating this uh, system-wide um, uh, immune activation and uh, these immune mediators have been shown to decrease the sensitivity of um, receptors for some of these satiety hormones. So hmm. not only is there an alteration at the gut level and this interaction between uh, microbial signals and enterochromophobin cells, but there's also an alteration at the, at the brain level in the hypothalamus that these hypothalamic receptors do not respond as well to the satiety hormones. Hmm. So the microbiome can actually impact the immune system. It's, it's not surprising that the immune system would be tied to the microbiome since our immune system is supposed to be basically communicating, detecting what microbes are doing in the body, but this can actually have a downstream impact on how our body is responding to its own hunger signals. Uh, absolutely. And uh, <clears throat> I, I think this is what's sort of been evolving. So this integrated relationship between, you know, the diet that influences microbial composition, um, then the signaling of the microbes with our hormonal cells in the gut, these satiety-containing, satiety hormone-containing cells, um, the interaction of the microbes with the immune system in the gut, because 70% of the immune system of our immune system cells are located in the gut, just microns away from, um, you know, from, 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 the, from the, the microbes in the center of the gut. And, and then that, that influencing our um, um, appetite and hunger regulating centers within in the hypothalamus um, and, and kind of uncoupling 
So one thing that happens, you know, in a situation like food addiction, so normally our craving for food and our behavior, motivated behavior to seek seek out, uh, you know, um, uh, tasty foods is 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 always constrained by this natural uh, barrier of, of of these systems that we talked about. If it becomes uncoupled, then the the cortical centers, you know, um, basically become unrestrained, and food intake is now driven by totally different uh, motivations, by um, you know, by memories of food and by um, all the, the stuff that we see in in advertisements, which creates these images and and and, and memories that then drive our food intake, not based on metabolic needs, but based mm-hmm. on you know cortical not on hypothalamic mechanisms, but on, on uh, you know, cortical and um, uh, emotional centers within the brain. Is this the distinction between what they call homeostatic versus hedonic regulation? Yeah, absolutely. So that's a hallmark of, um, um, of, of food addiction. So I mean, some people have a problem calling this really an addiction, but I think it has many features that this behavior that you can compare to um, to other um, situations of, of of substance abuse and addictive behavior, um, but but this is one of the hallmarks that the hedonic component um, becomes dominant and the uh, homeostatic one is overridden by by these hedonic impulses. Mm. So, so in simple terms food intake that's regulated homeostatically is sort of like the natural baseline way that hunger is regulated. You're eating because you actually feel hungry because you actually have not eaten in a while. Whereas the hedonic component is eating something because you remember that it tastes really good and you just want that pleasure on, of eating it. Yeah. And, and a good example, I mean, you know, I've, I've been on, on, on a lot of sort of um, mountaineering um adventures and you know like long distance hiking and what you notice that um you know after a couple of days you 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 switch completely to the homeostatic um mechanism of 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 food intake because there's no possibility like you can't take all your snacks and power bars to last you you know for four weeks on, on on your hike so you essentially just eat for your homeostatic needs, um, and which, which is actually very little, you know, and and you're not craving for food. You're um, you're focused on your on your hiking experience and the, the physical performance. And, and even though you need more, you you're burning more calories. You don't have that craving for 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 food all the time. It, it just completely switches. And I think what we what we see in 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 our um, modern world it's the opposite you know that we um we spend so much time sitting in, in so many people in front of the tv for or in front of their iphones um which is all time that um you know does does not really require the the, the uh, or it's not influenced by by the homeostatic needs of the body that they're, they're minimal the, the, so it, anything that people do is what they see on the commercial. Um, you know, they get up in the middle of their evening TV and go to the fridge and eat something. 
not for homeostatic needs, but because they saw that appealing advertisement on on, on TV. So that, that's a that's a good you know practical example. Hmm. So backing up a little bit to the microbiome. What is the microbiome? Is it just the, the full set of microbes that live inside of us? It's the full set of microbes plus their genetic information, basically their function. So if you want to be really strict with the definition, so the microbiota are the, the players, the individual microbes, and uh, you know that includes bacteria and viruses uh, and fungi with the bacteria being the most abundant. The other two groups, we haven't really studied that well, um, but all three groups of uh, microorganisms interact with each other. The microbiome is if you add these, you know, hundreds, uh, I mean, millions of, of, of genetic information that microbes have, which essentially um, is representative for the functional capabilities that they have, many of which we don't, most of which we don't really understand yet. Um, but so microbiome is both the, 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 the individual players, but also their products or their metabolites or their functions that they exert. And uh, it's, it's a very complex system. I think we're just really at the beginning of unraveling the complexity. And as I mentioned, the interactions, for example, of, of viruses, most of which are phages that that feed on the microbes so the 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 relative abundances of microbes are partially influenced by your virome but you know what how how many viruses and what type you have um and it's quite possible that you know quite likely actually that in five ten years we will focus primarily on these on these viruses you know as in terms of implicating them in 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 some of the diseases that right now are um, sort of counted as 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 as, as microbiome related or as bacteria related. So, what are some of the major examples of, say, components of our diet that are broken down not by our own cells but by microorganisms? And then, on the flip side of that, what are some examples of metabolites that these organisms are producing that are doing? very impactful things in our own bodies. So, um, I mean, the main, the main principle is that, you know, microbes, um, and, I, and I, have to, I have to admit, so I'm, I'm not an expert on the virome, so I can't tell you that exactly, you know, I mean, obviously the viruses feed on the microbes, so they're not really including this, but in general, we have this interaction of, um, the food that we eat with the micro, with the microbiome, it's the main influence. And um, it's the components in the food that um, th that cannot be absorbed by our, by our small intestine, um, but that go down to towards the end of the small intestine, the ileum and into the colon, where they're then broken down or metabolized by uh, microbes into smaller um, you know, smaller components, short-chain fatty acids being sort of one of the most often talked about of these metabolites because we know that they have a lot of beneficial effects on, on the gut and, and on the body and on, and, and on the immune system. And um, then there's another group of molecules um, called polyphenols, so very large um, 
I mean, they used to get a lot of attention some time ago as antioxidants because people found if you put these these large molecules into test tubes, they have an, an antioxidant effect on cells, on cultured cells, and um, or if they're injected uh, into into animals, the same thing. But in the meantime, we know that most of them, just like fiber, um, is the, the the two large molecules. We don't have the mechanisms, the enzymes in the in the proximal small intestine to break them down and absorb them, so they all go down. And microbes have the ability to break down these polyphenols into smaller components and phenolic compounds, which um, can then be absorbed. Um, um, so both of these major plant-based food components, the fiber and the polyphenols, <clears throat> have sort of a similar um, function. So they they escape our absorption, so they don't get shortcut into our metabolism. Um, and they have a beneficial effect on the microbes, on the composition, on the diversity, um, uh, but also then the microbes turn them into molecules that are absorbable and have health benefits for us. Uh, the fiber components are at this point better understood than many of these phenolic compounds, um, but there's pretty good evidence that you know phenolic compounds, uh, once they're absorbed, play a role either as antioxidants, but also other uh, anti-inflammatory functions, like for, for example, at the, at, at the brain level. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the main connection between you know, food, the microbes, um, and the metabolites, and then our, our health is sort of this, this chain of events. Um, and I always say, you know, the healthiest diet is one that's essentially targeted at the microbes. If, if you, it's a little bit extreme to say that, but I think it's pretty correct that if you only eat to the benefit of your microbes, um, you do the best thing for your body as, at the same time. So basically, these microbes are breaking down stuff that we can't absorb or break down on our own. And in so doing that, they produce compounds that we actually can absorb and and use and can have benefits in, in different ways. Yeah, and 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 the way this um, developed in evolution, you know, food of our ancestors, hunter gatherers, um, you know, was was very high in these unabsorbable com- food components. Uh, you know, it was. It was certainly unprocessed. Um, cooking became the first major way of processing food. Fermentation became another way of doing this. But our ancestors, in order to get enough calories, they were totally relying on this mechanism on their microbes to break down these plant-based foods and turn them into short-chain fatty acids um, and provide energy for the for, for the body. Today, you know, we're in a very different situation. Everything is ultra processed. Everything gets rapidly absorbed in the first part of the small intestine, the duodenum. And, you know, one of the, one of the reasons for our obesity epidemic is, is, is exactly that, how the food has changed from something that originally, that our bodies were specialized in breaking down, having broken down by the microbes, to something that's rapidly absorbed instantaneously when we, you know, when we eat it. Sugar is the best example, you know, that um, 
a vast amount of our calories are come from this rapidly absorbed sugar, um, not just sugar that we add to, you know, to our coffee uh, or to our cereals, the, the sugar, the high fructose corn syrup that's mm-hmm. ubiquitous in our food. So, um, yeah, this uh, completely changing the, the, you know, the way what we ingest from something that was originally we developed this this unique symbiosis with the microbes to keep us alive and keep us fed. We've abandoned that system and we've completely switched it to the other one, and now are neglecting the you know the microbial ecosystem mm-hmm. with its own negative consequences. Mm-hmm. I actually didn't realize. I actually had not realized that about processed food. So processed food doesn't simply mean food that contains things that we don't find in nature or contains something artificial. It actually means that the food itself and what it does contain is absorbed earlier on in the digestive process, much more so than what, you know, our hunter gatherer ancestors would have been. Absolutely. Take a good example, you know, um, the often maligned um, bread intake. You know, mm-hmm. if 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 you look at uh, some of the, um, you know, like the ancient cereals, uh, it's it's now becoming popular again, certainly in Europe, that you get can buy these these breads made out of, um, you know, ancient cereals, um, and 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 not from um, from 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 the processed wheat. Um, so the, this is a good example. The the original breads w- had so much fiber in them because of these um, these grains, these you know ancient grains. That um, there, there was a lot of that bread that goes to the microbes. You know, mm. uh, I I don't know if you can say half of it or but but then you take Wonder Bread, um, which is still advertised, being advertised on on TV. I've recently seen this. It's amazing that this still happens. Hawaiian bread, which is this white, totally devoid of any fiber, mm. ultra-processed bread, which will all be absorbed immediately when you when you eat it, you know, and, and nothing goes further downstream. So, so is it fair to say, is it fair to say that highly processed food, when you eat highly processed food, you are effectively starving your microbiome? That's that that's correctly said. Yeah. So this is exactly that. And 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 this is something that I think what we have seen in the last um, 75 years, increasingly with, um, you know, w- with industrial food production, um, I mean, starting with the kind of seeds and plants that we use. So the potatoes, you know, are now optimized, not based on their fiber content, like uh, sweet potatoes that are essential part of the Okinawan healthy diet, which has a lot of fiber and goes down to the microbes to the French fried potatoes um, that are, you know, just ideal for making French fries, and that is the mostly consumed form now uh, in in the in the U.S., for example. So, and, and there's many examples that this wide variety of um, of grains um, and plants um, has been reduced dramatically based on the interests of. Um, you know these 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 big food processing companies that um, and th- that have conditioned the the the, the taste preferences of children, um, you know, and 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 sort of this is still something I think we 
we see now changes in this. I mean, it's a good thing that people, everybody talks about gut health. And so, uh, you know, fiber is becoming sort of a major topic of this conversation. Um, but it starts really way upstream. It starts with the selection of, of seeds and plants that are being used to make the food that we, you know, that we consume. Um, and I always see this, you know, when I travel in Europe, that, um, that in some countries, they, they, they've made this, they've gone back um, much faster to using some of these old um, in, uh, ingredients, much less selected, much less uh, ultra processed than, than in the US. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're eating, the, the diet that you're eating can influence the composition of your microbiome. If you're eating a bad diet, whatever exactly that means, that can have bad consequences for your microbiome. I want to talk about at least one more way that we negatively impact our microbiome. And then I want to switch to how we can actually build it back up potentially. So I want to talk about antibiotics. Antibiotics are obviously much more prevalent today than they have been historically. So what is the effect of antibiotics that are common on our microbiome and what do we know is going on there? Yeah. So antibiotics are given, and this is very Part of the problem. I mean, they've been the most effective therapy that you know modern medicine has ever developed. So, millions of lives have been saved because of antibiotics. But the principle of antibiotics is um, that you that you declare war on a particular pathogen, on a, a particular strain of a of, of a microbe, like a particular strain of E. coli, for example. But at the same time, being willing to take the collateral damage on all the other microbial strains that you have in your in your in your gut, so it's it's a very you know if if this were warfare, it would be cluster bombs on civilian areas, um, just to, to catch one terrorist. So this is sort of the comparison, <clears throat> and they had a they've had a detrimental effect. You know what. In, in proportion, how much the excessive use of antibiotics, what negative effect they, that this has had compared to the poor diet, I, I couldn't give you a number for that. It's for the interaction. But um, um, so there are shocking numbers, you know, that uh, the children by the age of two have already received, uh, received um, between five and 10 doses of broad-spectrum antibiotics. Generally, well, for two reasons. Generally, because of overly worried mothers um, that take their, their infants to, to the pediatrician uh, when they have a bad cold. Um, and, you know, they say something has to be done. You know, my, I, I need an antibiotic. I've seen this many times, mm -hmm. you know, that, that mothers, um, um, I mean, friends have come to me, they cannot make a prescription for an antibiotic. The other one is, um, um, that, um, you know, we have used antibiotics, for, for example, during the whole, the, the time of delivery. So women get prophylactic mm. antibiotics, um, um, in, in the delivery room to prevent serious infections, which do happen in, in, in some women. But it, so life already starts for an infant coming out of the birth canal 
um, being exposed to antibiotics because these antibiotics have affected the, the, the maternal um, uh, microbiome, which first comes in contact with the, with the infant. So yeah, antibiotics, uh, particularly early in life, because the development or the, the programming of the microbiome happens during the first three years of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's obviously the worst time to use these broad spectrum antibiotics, um, you know, for, for, for non-indications. So mm-hmm. none of these viral diseases obviously are affected by that. Yeah. No, I mean, I think we probably all have examples in our life. I, I certainly can think of some where, you know, someone has a cold, which is caused by a virus and they just go to the doctor and demand an antibiotic and they typically get it just because it's probably irritating for the doctor to keep hearing it. They, they, they typically get it. And what's, what's also interesting is, <clears throat> you know, some kids get better and it's pretty more a placebo effect because, you know, we do know that antibiotics do not affect viruses, you know? Mm-hmm. So if you take an antibiotic and believe this is really powerful, you will, you will feel better, you know, there's no question. So, And I did want to, so you mentioned the idea of the microbiome getting set up um, very early on before birth and during birth. Can you talk a little bit more about how that initial microbiome is normally established in a young child? And then also any, are there any clear links between antibiotics early in life, alterations in the microbiome, and then, you know, childhood obesity or other metabolic issues? Yeah. So this is a complicated topic because this programming, um, is is quite complex. So it starts. <clears throat> I mean, you could almost go back to um, to a situation, you know, before the child is born, because the microbiome of the mother um, will produce metabolites and signaling molecules and inflammatory substances that affect the developing um, fetus. Um, so there is already an exposure to microbial to the microbial world, um, even though the the, the fetus is, does not have its own microbiome. It's been controversial, but most likely not. Um, it is already exposed to microbial products from, from, the, from the mother. Um, and that may play a big role in diseases like autism spectrum, you know, which starts really in utero. Then when, when the infant is, is born, it goes through the birth canal, um, or, or at least still in, in the majority of women, and it comes in contact with a sort of a mixture of microbes from the um, the intestinal tract of the mother, um, you know, from 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 the rectum and uh, end of vagina, um, and that's the first inoculation uh, of this sterile environment, uh, sterile gut environment of 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 the of the newborn. That is influenced um, by we know this mainly from animal experiments. Um, is influenced if the mother has taken the antibiotic because then that affects the mother's vaginal microbiome and the, the, the intestinal. But also um, if the mother is chronically stressed, so there's uh, fascinating studies that have shown that, <clears throat> that chronic stress in, in, in mice changes the vaginal microbiome. Um, and so the, the newborn mice get inoculated by a very different microbial uh, population than in non-stressed mice. So um, the antibiotic exposure of the mother and the stress level of the mother 
um, have a major influence on this early inoculation. Then it continues. So um, breast milk um, has molecules in it, um, this human milk oligosaccharides. Um, it's another category of these molecules that are too big to be absorbed by the small intestine. And so in evolution, they were designed not for uh, nutrition for the newborn, but targeted at, at, at the microbiome, at the evolving microbiome. Um, these human milk oligosaccharides are influenced again by the diet and the genetics of the mother. Hmm. Multiple connections, you know, between the mother and this, this development of the, the infant microbiome. So C-sections, which have become increasingly popular in some parts of the world, I think in Italy and Brazil, leading that trend, um, up to 60% of women, I think, undergo C-sections, C-section deliveries. Um, and that has been shown that, you know, a C-section um, delivered baby will have an increased risk for developing asthma, for example, um, and, and uh, obesity. Hmm. Uh, even though the, 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 the microbiome normalizes, so if you take a, an, uh, an infant that was born by C-section and one by, uh, uh, you know, vaginally delivered, after a year, their microbiome composition looks very similar. Um, you know, they sort of adapt. But the, the programming that has happened during those, during that first year has occurred and it, it takes, for example, the immune system in a different direction. Hmm. Because during that first year, it's not just the microbiome, it's also the immune system interaction with these microbes. So just the fact that, you know, after a year, we have the same, you, you could, trivialize it and say uh, it's not such a big deal because you know after a year both types of babies are uh, you know basically have the same microbiome that, that's not correct because that year of uh, altered microbial immune interaction uh, will leave um, a, a memory and will leave a less competent immune system uh, that manifests later in life you know with autoimmune diseases and and, and allergies and uh, uh, then, so the other one is, you know, formula feeding versus breastfeeding. Um, I've sort of learned this, uh, had, had no idea about this. So in um, 100 years ago, you know, for wealthy people, um, women didn't want to breastfeed um, and, and actually hired nannies to breastfeed the, their, their, their children. Um, or, you know, formula feeding that happened in many parts of Africa. Um, so this was sold as a, as a good substitute for, for, for breastfeeding. So that also leaves a, a big trace on a negative trace on, on, on the microbiome because it did not get these molecules, these human milk oligosaccharides that were essential in setting up the ecosystem of, of the adult microbiome. So there's a lot of things that um, then we talked about the, the antibiotics that interfere with that process. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it, it's something that has not, I, I, I think, um, has not received enough attention um, by pediatricians and, and by OBGYN physicians and by young mothers 
how important that early phase is. So it's not just, you know, getting enough nutrients to the baby and calories. It's really nurturing the microbiome and um, optimizing this, this programming phase for later in life. And all these factors combined that we have interfered with in, in the modern world um, play, play a big role in, in, in our current health problems from obesity to autoimmune diseases to so the autoimmune diseases you know in addition to all the metabolic complications are another manifestation of of a compromised microbiome one of the things that i'm interested in learning about here is my understanding is that there's some striking experiments in rodents and experimental animals where Maybe you sort of wipe out the microbiome using broad-spectrum antibiotics, and then you actually replace that animal's microbiome with that from another animal. Are there any striking examples where that kind of microbiome transplantation is sufficient to either induce or cure some kind of disease? Yeah, up to date, it's there's only one disease where this has really clearly been demonstrated to be effective, and this is a particular form of <clears throat> post a post-antibiotic complication, C. difficile colitis, or some people um, sort of, after a course of antibiotic, wipe out their, their microbiome and developing and then develop life-threatening uh, colon inflammation or colitis. Um, that's been typically been treated with certain antibiotics, um, but it's been found that a fecal microbial transplant is the best short-term and long-term treatment for this condition. And probably the, the reason that this works uh, and that this is the only disease where this, where this works is because you have already wiped out your own microbial ecosystem through this process of you know, developing this colitis. So now when you come in with a transplant, um, it can start from, from scratch. And um, basically it will go back to your original um, design of your ecosystem. So there is a transition phase where the donor of this transplant, um, you know, these microbes will dominate your own um, uh, ecosystem composition. But this is a transition phase, you'll basically return to your own original programmed uh, microbiome. So the, the blueprint, so even though your microbiome has been wiped out by the antibiotic-associated colitis, um, the blueprint was not destroyed and the gut rebuilds that same population after a while. This has not been successful in many other diseases. So it's been tried in in obesity, it's been tried in, in inflammatory bowel disease, been tried in some uh, psychiatric diseases, um, and it's not happened because all of these, it's also been tried in uh, autism spectrum, and I'll say something about this in a minute. In all these other diseases, you don't have this initial complete destruction of the, of the ecosystem. So you have something you have a bad microbiome, a compromised microbiome, but it's still that system is still resilient enough to um, to exclude any newcomer to settle in that. Um, so this is called colonization resistance. So it's it will not allow any newcomer from a transplant to set mm -hmm. foot and and stay there. There's one um, 
so this is the current state of the knowledge. There's an interesting example um, of studies with autism spectrum disorder where a sort of a modified technique has been used. So um, using an initial application of a broad spectrum antibiotic to knock down as much as possible the, the autistic microbiome. Um, and then doing a series, uh, multiple transplants over time um, to, re to recolonize it. And that has been shown to be both um, largely in, in uncontrolled studies. So this is the big question mark. Uh, but it's been shown to change both the improve the symptoms, um, both the mental, but also the, the GI symptoms of these kids. Um, but also it's been shown to change the microbial ecosystem composition. Um, and even after follow-up after one year, I think it was one or two years, these benefits were still seen. So this would almost indicate that that is a way that you can, um, at, at, at least over a period of a couple of years, um, influence and change and correct this, this, this altered microbiome of characteristic of uh, autism spectrum um, children. Uh, I think in the future, people are working on techniques and there could be molecular biology or gene manipulation to overcome this colonization resistant, uh, resistance so that you have microbes that are identical to normal gut microbes, but where you um, Manipulate the genes so they can overcome the this colonization resistance of the ecosystem. That would have obviously um, huge potentials for the treatment of, of many diseases, you know, both in psychiatry and in in metabolic diseases. The risk of something like that is always, uh, you know, this this colonization resistance has a good reason why we have that because we wouldn't want any time we have an enteric infection that these pathogens can settle in, in our mm -hmm. microbiome and stay there. So you want, you want a system that's, uh, it's almost like the custom system, uh, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a country. You don't want anybody to come in uncontrolled and, and settle there. Um, you want to have some, some close regulation of that process. Mm -hmm. and, and if you, if you mess with that process, that evolution has established, there's always the risk that, uh, you know, this could go in the other direction. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like we normally have a kind of baseline microbiome with a certain population composition that our body will have a tendency to always go back to. And there's actually this, you're mentioning this concept of colonization resistance. So, you know, the microbiome that's native to our body is going to want to prevent other microbes from just getting in there. Does that have implications for how we think about things like probiotics and their ability to actually change our microbiome? And, you know, can you start talking about probiotics generally? Do they actually work most of the time? Do the products out there have the right bacteria in them? What, what should people know about that? Yeah. So your first part of the question is easier to answer. Um, so these probiotics in general, for the majority of people, do not overcome colonization resistance. So um, after 24 to 48 hours, you, you take a dose of a probiotic, it's gone from your, from your gut. It does not 
it, it, it does not change your originally programmed um, ecosystem. There's some exceptions when some people that actually are allowed to colonize. Um, I don't know what the factors are and uh, um, can't really give you a detailed explanation for that. Um, but in general, it's, it, it is important. If you, if, if you believe in probiotics, you would have to take them on a regular basis. Um, it may also be possible that some, so there's obviously multiple strains and species of probiotics. Um, you know, humans uh, started to develop fermented foods like some <clears throat> at least 40,000 years ago, not for health reasons, but for reasons to preserve um, food, you know, and allow them to travel long distances and uh, colonize other, you know, parts of the world. Um, so 40,000 years, that's long enough for our own microbiome and our own genes to adapt to that exposure. So it's, it's quite possible that many of the strains that are part of naturally fermented foods, be it, you know, fermented vegetables, fish, um, dairy products, or anything else um, are allowed, you know, do not ha have that problem of colonization resistance. I, again, I can't give you an, an, an answer, and I don't even know if that has been studied with all these different strains. Um, but it's certainly, for me personally, a, a reason why I recommend to patients, if you believe in probiotics, um, consume them with, with naturally fermented foods if you have access to them. Um, there was a study, uh, interesting study, kind of controversial, was, was received with a lot of criticism and suspicion came out of uh, the Weizmann Institute in, in Tel Aviv, where they found that uh, after an antibiotic course, um, people that got a cocktail of probiotics, in some of them, it took longer to reconstitute the pre-antibiotic um, microbial ecosystem, the healthy ecosystem, um, than the ones that did not get the, the probiotic cocktail. Um, so that it would actually delay uh, or compete with the natural, with, with the natural microbes to, to come back. Um, if that's, um, you know, I mean, obviously this ran to a lot of opposition from all the probiotic manufacturers. Uh, I do not know where that field stands. I've not seen a, um, a, a reversal or, um, this, these findings being refuted, um, but it's certainly something to keep in mind. Um, so most importantly, I would say, if you believe in probiotics and you take them and you notice a significant benefit for you, you may either be somebody where these microbes are allowed to settle in your gut um, or, um, or you have been taking them on a regular basis you know, and, and not just for a few weeks and then stop taking mm -hmm. them because they will not have a long-term effect. In the future, um, oh, then you asked me the question, so which of these probiotics, and there's obviously hundreds um, being um, promoted on, on the internet and, and by, by, by companies, each one is sort of celebrated as the most potent and the most evidence-based. Well, the evidence is very, very limited. Um, 
you know the 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 kind of rigor that that we apply to new medications, for example, um, you know randomized controlled trials, phase one, two, and three, for the great majority of probiotics has never happened, and probably will never happen. It's too expensive, um, and I think a lot of the people that uh, companies that sell these products would be afraid that it would show that. Um, you know, there's no benefit compared mm-hmm. to to the placebo group. So they, they, these studies are not being done. I've I've been involved a couple of times um, in in a process where, you know, scientists developed um, showed animal studies where this had a major effect on on brain health and depression like behavior. Then, uh, you know, these were industry sponsored preclinical studies. Then there was sort of a big plan to do. Uh, a worldwide randomized controlled trial, phase two or phase three. And I've seen this twice now, different companies. Those studies were canceled in the last minute. And, you know, no reason is given, but my feeling is the main reason is the risk of having negative results um, was too high to justify the expense of hundreds of millions of dollars for for, for, for trials like that, or it would show the negative thing and then it would kill this, mm-hmm. this compound for, uh, you know, for any commercial purposes. Yeah. I mean, I can just imagine the, you know, marketing teams at these companies right now, it's like you already have the one animal study that seems to show something positive. You can just point to that. And yeah, you and- can say there's a, it's evidence-based, it's science-based and, you know, that's what everybody's using. And um, I, I think there may be another, you know, there, there, there may be a whole other series of uh, probiotics on the horizon. And we, we see some of those. So for example, I've interacted with a, with a group in, in Canada that developed a, a bioengineered um, um, microbial strain that, uh, that, uh, produces short-chain fatty acids uh, in, in high amounts. And um, they were able to um, knock out the gene that is responsible for this uh, colonization resistance. So these these microbes would actually settle in the gut um, and have a much more pro- profound effect on, you know, the, the ecosystem. Another one would be, you know, um, beneficial microbes that, are high short-chain fatty acid or uh, like butyrate producers that, um, um, or, you know, producers, for example, of, of GABA, this, um, this neurotransmitter that could have anxiolytic effects. These, comp- these microbes have already been engineered and have undergone some testing. Uh, some of them are on, on, on the market. Um, like for short-chain fatty acid producers, um, but others like the GABA producing has not made it in, into any commercial application because probably they, you know, there, there were concerns about either do you reach high enough concentrations in the in the brain from microbial produced GABA or uh, so I think there will be new a new generation of probiotics. How popular they will be with the public, like genetically engineered microbes in your gut. So obviously a lot of resistance to that concept. Um, and so, but we'll have to see that there is enough, you know, startup companies are working in that in that space that we'll, we'll see some of these. Mm-hmm. 
So you mentioned briefly that some people might be unusual and their guts may be more readily colonizable by certain microbes. How much variation is there from person to person in microbiome composition? Is there a lot of variability? And how, how easily changeable or tunable might that composition be from person to person? Yeah, so there's a, there's a huge vari variability, uh, inter-individual variability. So if you compare it with genetic um, you know, variability, um, which, I mean, we're so similar to each other and even to a mouse uh, next to us. Um, but in terms of the microbes, particularly if you go down to the strain level, so if you, you know, the different classifications of, of taxa, of microbes, if you start at the, at the highest level, um, so almost everybody has like three main um, um, uh, taxa, firmicutes, bacteroidetes, and, um, um, and, 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 the, and the third group of uh, microbes, everybody, almost everybody has those. If you go down another level uh, to the species, you'll see that this um, similarity will go way down. And if you go to the strain level, it's been estimated that only 10% are shared by individuals with each other. Hmm. Um, so, so it depends a lot of at, at what level you look at. Uh, ultimately, it depends on the strains. Because if you think about E. coli, the species of E. coli, you know, there's strains that are deadly. Uh, entrotoxigenic e, e. coli, and there are strains that are commensal, so highly beneficial to our what, microbial composition. So I, I think, um, I mean, many of the early studies, the majority is, have stopped at, at best at the species level. Um, many of them didn't go deeper than the, the, the genus level. Um, and so the results that came out of these studies is kind of misleading. You know, it's, uh, I, I think with, with, the, with the more sophisticated techniques that we use today, um, you know, metagenomic analysis or transcriptomic analysis, you get to a much finer grain of differentiating, um, you know, the, the different players and different products generate within, within the microbiome. And it's, um, so we, the, the second part of your question was, how, um, maybe you want to repeat it, how, how we can change it? Yeah, like how, how changeable is it? Based on what you've said so far, it's sort of sounding like it's relatively difficult to change the composition of the microbiome unless <laughs> you do something relatively drastic, like go on a broad-spectrum antibiotic. Yeah, so this is something that has really changed this concept uh, over time. <clears throat> We know, for example, there's a certain bandwidth that it's changeable. So, you know, we can't, um, if you compare our gut microbiome with that of um, the remnants of hunter-gatherers uh, in, uh, in, in Africa, the Hasta or with the Yanomami on the Orinoco, um, you know, our diversity and richness is way down um, and will continue to decrease based on these lifestyle changes in, in modern societies that we talked about earlier. But that doesn't mean that, you know, we're doomed uh, on this downhill course of, of our gut microbial health. There's a certain bandwidth. I think this is how people currently conceptualize this. There's a certain bandwidth that we can either improve it 
but not get to the level of, of our ancestors. Um, um, but we certainly is much leeway to make it even worse. Um, so the it is it is changeable, and the the, the change happens can be intergenerational. So if one, uh, for example, it's been shown in animals, if if one generation of animals is fed a, a low fiber diet, then microbial diversity goes down. The offspring, um, if the offspring again is fed a, a uh, such a diet, you will go further down. Um, if you try to intervene after the first generation, you may be able to bring it back uh, to its original richness and diversity. But after the second generation, that's no longer possible. And I think we may be seeing, it's always hard to extrapolate from mouse studies to the human situation, but we may be seeing something similar that there has been this progressive decrease in the health of the gut uh, you know, microbiome system that we'll, we'll not be able to reverse that completely, but certainly we can stop further decline and we can, um, you know, we can go up a certain level within the bandwidth of, of, of variability. Certainly, um, this studies have shown rapid response to dietary changes um, from, you know, carnivore to, um, to vegan, pretty dramatic change of the, the both the, the individual uh, microbial abundances, but also the metabolites that they produce. <clears throat> um, and this is in the in the in the short term, but if these people would go back to their original diet, it would switch back to the you know to their original composition. Hmm. So there's definitely, I mean, the good news is, and that's really important for you know recommendations for healthy diets. The good news is you can stop further deterioration. You can improve the situation over um, its current baseline. If there is a possibility, then over generations to rebuild it, uh, that's, I, I don't think that's known yet. I've not seen that. Um, and that may be different in humans than, than, in, than in mice. Um, but there's certainly reason for optimism and justification for a aggressive campaign for, you know, gut microbial friendly diets and a restoration of the ecosystem. So, so there definitely is some response of the microbiome to the diet we're eating. I did want to ask you about different diets. Um, so on the one hand, our diet like, must obviously impact our metabolic health and things like microbiome composition. On the other hand, you know, dieting is a very frustrating and annoying topic to a scientist, I think, and to a lot of people, because, you know, every week there's a new diet book out that claims to be the best diet for whatever. And a lot of it is clearly, you know, garbage mixed in with partial truth mixed in with actual factual statements. So it's very difficult even for an educated person to make heads or tails of the whole dieting industry and, and what they can, can follow uh, good advice for. So can you talk a little bit about a couple different popular areas of dieting and whether or not there's any clear evidence that they impact things like the microbiome? The one I want to ask you about first, because it's related to the stories you were telling us from your mountaineering 
adventures is intermittent fasting. So it started to sound like you were saying that the body can sort of switch modes or regimes of metabolism and be less anchored in the hedonic signals that we're getting in the modern world and go back to mostly paying attention to homeostatic hunger signals if you just sort of remove yourself from having food all over the place. So does that tie into intermittent fasting and whether or not that can actually have benefits on our health? Yeah, so, uh, you know, intermittent fasting has received a lot of attention recently. Um, I personally like to sort of break this up into the truly intermittent fasting and the time-restricted eating because I think there are is a significant difference between those two. So with time with time restricted eating, which is a technique that I think is is practical, is realistic. Um, almost everybody can do this, um, where you don't limit the amount of food that you eat, but you compress the feeding time, the eating time, um, into uh, eight hours uh, or or less if you can. Um, and leave the gut empty for 16 hours. Mm -hmm. so there's, a, there's a lot of theoretical um, and um, preclinical reasons <clears throat> or evidence to support that. So one is, if you go to a, to, let's say you 16 hours of, of non-eating, a big portion of that happens during your sleep. So at least, um, you know, half, half of that happens during your sleep. <clears throat> And so you, you switch the whole physiology of your GI tract. You switch uh, the contraction patterns from one of peristalsis and mixing and grinding to a regular, almost like clockwork uh, uh, sequence that every 90 minutes you have a big contractile wave starting in the esophagus, <clears throat> going all the way down to the end of your intestine. And that wave is used to be called uh, the housekeeper of the, the, the gut. We didn't really know when this first was detected, um, this, this was like when I started my career in this field that this was first reported by investigators at the Mayo Clinic. Um, so, to, so it was thought to clean the GI tract of all debris and undigestible food, but that's probably not the main function of it. Uh, if you imagine the microbes living in these different communities all along the gut, it, it puts them back into the right place and it regulates the abundance in different parts of the gut. Like in the small intestine, you want to have a very low concentration of these microbes in, um, in the proximal small intestine and a little bit higher in the distal and highest in the colon. So what this wave does, it puts everybody back into place. It's almost like cleaning up at the end of a, of a, of a busy day, you know, in, in, in a, in a, in a restaurant. Um, that seems to be a very important part of regulating the, uh, you know, the ecosystem. Um, and, and there's different, different parts. These ecosystems are regionally specialized. You know, you don't have the same ecosystem all the way through your gut. Mm -hmm. It's different in the small intestine, distal, small intestine, large intestine. So that's, that's one thing. It also, this wave, um, affects the secretion, um, affects um, blood flow, um, but it also has been shown now to affect the, the what's called the geography of the, the microbes towards your, your gut lining and the cells that make up your gut lining and the immune cells. 
So during the fasting, you have a greater distance. So there's less of that uh, signaling uh, that goes from the microbes to um, the rest of the body. Um, then, uh, you know, during, during the feeding time. Um, so both in terms of the, the ecosystem localization, relative abundances, and the geography of the microbes to your in uh, relationship to your gut lining um, is, is altered during this, uh, you know, non-eating phase. And we have almost abandoned this in our modern lifestyle, you know, snacking in front of the TV uh, till midnight or after midnight um, uh, and, and then having snacking throughout the day. The whole um, food bar industry is essentially a way of eliminating that, that, that mechanism, that regulatory mechanism from our, because the minute you put something in your mouth, it will stop that, that cleaning process. Mm. So this is, um, and I would say, you know, there's very convincing mouse experiments that mice could be fed a very unhealthy, what's called cafeteria diet, um, on which they would gain weight and develop metabolic disturbances. Um, if they are fed at libitum, they can have access to the food all the time. Um, but when they're switched to this time-restricted eating, they can consume the same diet, but... Um, will not show these negative consequences. So I, I think it's something, so we've tried this in our own family during the pandemic, during the stay home phase. It's something that takes some discipline uh, not to, you know, snack or have your glass of wine in, in the evening after dinner. Um, but after a while, it sort of becomes a pretty natural state. And it, it definitely on, on our self-experiment um, has shown, you know, beneficial effects on pretty significant loss of weight. Um, um, now, there are several studies out now. There's a lot of studies in animals, which are all positive. So a few studies out in, in humans, some of which are positive, others are, are, are negative, did not show a benefit. So the, the final word on that is still out. So this is all about time-restricted eating. Mm -hmm. Now, if you go to intermittent fasting, obviously a much more difficult thing to do for the average person, uh, unless you're spiritually um, motivated um, or you know have a very high discipline. Um, so, so would this be intermittent fasting? Would that be having multiple days where you're not eating in a row? Yeah, and you know people have used different um, patterns. So some people go on one-week fasts or just water during a one-week fast or some go on a two days two days a week, one day a week, uh, one fasting day. Um, I, I just think, you know, being at work, um, like most people are, uh, it's, it's just like you can do this for the, the length of a clinical trial for a four-week period, but um, there's evidence that many of these techniques, you know, if, to, if you look at them after a year, will not be sustained. Um, and obviously you lose. Then it's particularly bad because people lose weight on these dietary interventions. Then if you stop it, you know, many have this yo-yo effect where then the weight increases above your, your baseline weight even. Mm. So you make things even worse. So, but I think, you know, if you have the discipline if you live a 
monastic life, you know, the fasting is very, very important thing for, because it does affect the brain and uh, your mind and consciousness. Uh, but for the, the average person, I just don't think that these techniques are, um, are, are, are realistic. You know? What, what do people tend to report if they go on a multi-day fast? Um, I've heard that, you know, usually the first day or two, uh, you basically get very irritable and you're probably not fun to be around. But then after that, you have other kinds of mental and behavioral changes. Yeah, so people say that, you know, they feel better, they have more energy, they have, uh, they've lost their brain fog, uh, improved their concentration, uh, so many positive things. And, you know, that could be attributed. So what happens during this fasting is that you switch your main metabolic mode um, to a, a state of ketosis. So you're burning ketone bodies instead of uh, sugar for your energy. And um, ketone bodies, uh, you know, from your fat stores. Um, and so typically, you know, when people go on a ketogenic diet, they actually eat or try to live primarily on, on, on animal products, fat and, and protein. But fasting essentially forces the body to do something very similar, you know, without ingesting unhealthy um, aspects of, of, of a diet, which I think the, you know, most of these animals, particularly if you consume them in, 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 in high amounts. Um, so if you look at it this way, you know, even the, and this is just really from self-experimentation, I, I have to say, I haven't seen the study. So if you um, go into intermittent fasting during that, um, during the 16 hour, not having food in your stomach, um, and particularly if you exercise, you get up in the morning, you exercise on empty stomach, you will have a certain degree of ketosis and burning ketone bodies instead of sugar because there's no, uh, you, you know, uh, ingested uh, carbohydrates that you can burn. So if you extend that period by having your first meal of the day, which is typically at 11 or noon, um, being of, um, of plant-based um, fats and protein, you know, without carbs. So these would be seeds and, um, um, uh, um, yeah, we, I mean, this would be mainly seeds, uh, different types of seeds. And um, then you can actually expand that that time of ketosis so this is this is what we have switched to so we are actually on on a ketogenic mode for for more than the um you know the 16 hours we're probably on that mode for for 20 hours a day and i mean again we've not done a study on this i've, not, I've never seen a study on this but from what i know i would imagine that this is for the best way that you can use this ketosis principle um, for your own health without at the same time eating a healthy diet because you know if you, your second big meal should be a highly varied plant-based diet with multiple um, you know fiber um, providing vegetables and, uh, and, and 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 fruit so yeah for me personally, I'm against uh, 
the ketogenic diet for many reasons, environmental, um, but also health-wise. But I think utilizing that principle of a um, um, of a switching to a ketogenic mode during this intermittent, uh, not intermittent fasting, the time restricted eating is probably a good thing. Mm -hmm. So just to summarize, intermittent fasting, much harder to implement just because it's not as practical. You have to go multiple days without eating. But what you're effectively doing with intermittent fasting is putting your body into a state of ketosis, which is the same thing that people achieve when they go on this ketogenic diet that's high in animal fat and protein. Yeah. And the difference between that and the time-restricted feeding is that if you're doing time-restricted feeding, you just have to pick a start time and a stop time every day and stick to it 16 hours without food. But it sounded like it really has to be 16 hours without anything except water, not even like a glass of wine or a glass of juice. Is that accurate? Yeah. And that's, that's the hard part. You know, it's not... Um, most people have their dinner, you know, by seven, eight at the latest, and they don't really feel like they want to have another meal. But the snacking and the and and alcohol, um, that that's that's the hardest part of to, to. So you essentially change your lifestyle, you know. And um, we have sort of come up with this idea that you don't have to do this a hundred percent because if you travel, you know, if you go to a Mediterranean country or to Argentina, mm -hmm. you don't want to live like that for these two weeks that you're traveling there because you're missing out on the best part of that culture, mm -hmm. you know, eating outdoor restaurants at 11 at night. Um, but um, at home, uh, you know, related, uh, in, in, you can easily build this into your work schedule. Uh, it's, it's something, you know, it's, it's something feasible, um, without making a religion. We also found, you know, when we invite friends over, obviously you don't say after eight o'clock, there's no, there's, there's not a glass of wine or a glass of beer. Um, so you don't have to be religious about this. You know, you should be religious for most of the time, but don't sacrifice your social life or your enjoyment of other things because of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's good advice. You know, during the work week, when you're at home, and you're not traveling or whatever, you know, stick to something, but at, you know, you can let, you can let things slip beyond that as long as you're doing it some of the time. You mentioned the Mediterranean diet effectively, or the Mediterranean culture. And I did want to ask you about the so-called Mediterranean diet. Is that, cause you hear, that's one of the ones that you hear about all the time. Is that even really a thing? And if so, what is the composition of that diet? And is there any evidence of any positive health benefits of that type of diet? Yeah, so, um, you know, what it is, I mean, it started with these early studies of the famous um, <clears throat> um, paper by Ansel Key or, 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 or a report that was solicited by the, I think the Rockefeller Foundation, where he studied people in, in Crete in the, um, I, I think it was in the early 60s. And, and this was obviously a very different, situation of, of um, you know, uh, kind of low-income people who could not afford <clears throat> a lot of meat. So they, they had a, a diet that was, um, was high in vegetables and, and fruits, which were cheaper, easily available, um, with some meat, usually goat meat, and, uh, and some poultry. And <clears throat> when he compared the, the, the health outcomes of people in Crete with other populations in Europe, 
<clears throat> they they saw in this cross-sectional um, epidemiological studies, you know, significant health benefits. Now, this could have been confounded by a lot of different factors. And obviously, that diet in the early 60s in Crete is not what you get today when you travel in Italy or Spain, or if you go to an Italian restaurant. Um, and we, we just been dramatically changed. So I usually say <clears throat> the health benefits of a traditional Mediterranean diet, which is more similar to, you know, high in uh, could be high in fat, in plant fat, olive oil primarily, um, mm. seeds and nuts, and um, different types of seasonal vegetables and and and, and fruits, um, and low in in in, in red meat um, and and dairy products. Um, but and and there's now many um, cross-sectional epidemiological case control studies that have been done and have confirmed that, that not only this seems to be beneficial or has a decreased risk for morbidities, um, cardiovascular disease, um, um, psychiatric, like depression, uh, metabolic disease. So the, the evidence for that is, is pretty strong. I mean, these are not most of these are not longitudinal studies. Most of them are not would not allow you to say anything about the causality that clearly these better health outcomes were were directly caused by that diet. Um, but significant um, circumstantial evidence that, that that it's it's the case. And um, so there's a few recent studies that have actually looked at an intervention. So. With a control group and following um, individuals up for for a while, and some of these studies have really proven that people on this diet both have a uh, favorable microbiome profile and metabolites and lower inflammatory markers in the brain, lower metabolites that we know play a role in uh, the pathophysiology of many brain disorders. Um, and that, so they, they, they looked at frailty and cognitive decline in these people, and it had a positive effect on those as well, on those clinical outcomes. So I would say that, um, and there are studies going on in, uh, you know, early Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease in, in, in many, um, both medical and psychiatric uh, diseases. And my guess is they will in generally confirm um, the, the, the benefits of that diet. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so, but for many of the other studies, the evidence is, is much less strong, mainly because there haven't been that many uh, studies done in, 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 in that same rigorous way. So uh, smaller studies that show certain benefits for the ketogenic diet in terms of metabolic um, Regulation, yeah, clearly, if you go on a four-week uh, ketogenic diet, you will improve your hemoglobin A1C. You will, you know, improve syst systemic immune activation. But if you do this for for a year or longer, it will have negative. These positive effects will be um, overshadowed by negative effects because you're essentially starving your. You, you, you got microbiome, you know, and it's that which we know is an unhealthy thing.
So switching gears a little bit, your latest book is about the interaction between the gut and the immune system. Is that accurate? Um, th- this, this new book coming out, yeah. Mm-hmm. So is there anything you want to say about that book and what's inside of it that people might find interesting given all the things that we've touched on here? Yeah, so it's it's clearly building on my first book, The Mind-Gut Connection. Um, but it takes it, so a lot of things have happened in those five years, science-wise. Um, and it sort of really focused on this phenomenon that, um, you know, that diet influences our microbiome, which then has an effect on how the microbiome interacts with our immune, gut-based immune system and how the gut-based immune system then sends inflammatory signals throughout the body to other organs, uh, all our other organs, the liver, the colon, the, the brain, the heart, um, and how, how those, uh, you know, th- those immune signals together with other chemical signals from the microbes play a major role in, um, in, in many of these, these diseases. I focus again on, on brain diseases, um, cognitive decline, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, uh, autism spectrum, but mention that, you know, how closely um, these, these links that we see to other disorders like cardiovascular and metabolic and cancer, but I'm, I'm not going into the detail of these. So at the core of this concept is that the, the microbes, diverse microbiome um, plays a big role in generating and maintaining the, the, the barrier between the microbes and the immune system in the gut, um, initially in form of the mucus layer that you know, the, many microbes interact with specialized cells in the gut. Scarlet cells produce this mucus, which is the first layer of insulation. And then um, the gut epithelial layer, the second line, and how a compromised dietary compromised gut microbiome leads progressively to a compromised insulation between microbes and the immune system. So that's where the problem starts. Um, that compromised microbiome could come from either the, the poor diet, many examples for the standard American diet, um, you know, high in sugar, high in ultra-processed foods, high in, um, low in fiber, um, um, high in animal-based fats. Um, but there's also another factor that plays a big role, which is the descending influences from the brain. So chronic stress, you know, what's called allostasis, chronic engagement of the, the stress system in the brain has very similar effects on this, on this barrier. You know, it increases the, the permeability of the leakiness of this gut barrier, the mucus layer and the epithelial layer. So in, in our modern lifestyle, we have unfortunately a combination of both the chronic stress, increase in chronic stress levels and, um, and uh, you know, the, the worsening of the diet, which interact and obviously create a, uh, the, the worst possible uh, scenario. And we see, you know, with increasing rates of depression, on the one side, we have this uh, increased rate of um, Poor digestive health, but they they converge on something that is is a common denominator. 
Then also another thing that I, I come up then from this with this recommendation, a healthy diet is one that keeps in mind, first of all, the health of your gut microbiome. So, which means, you know, largely plant-based food. The, the other one is that when you select your diet, you have to ask three questions. What do you eat? Um, uh, when you eat it? And where does the food come from? Because there's a lot of changes in the way, uh, you know, modern industrial agriculture has changed food production. And we, we will see even worse things coming down the pipeline with... Um, um, aquaponics, you know, uh, uh, vegetables and fruits grown in water and no longer in soil. So there's no longer an exposure to the microbes in, in the soil, which play a big role in stimulating the health-promoting molecules, these polyphenols in the plants. Um, and then also the impact of your diet on not just on, you know, soil health, but also on environmental health with a major impact that the constantly increasing consumption of, of animal products, what this has on um, deforestation and monocultures and use of pesticides and, um, uh, you know, herbicides. So it's, it takes it from the microbes and microbial health all the way to uh, soil health and planetary health and the concept I like to call the, the one health concept. So we've touched on it a little bit, but one of the last things I want to ask you is to what extent and how all of your research and all of your studies over the past few years, past few decades, has influenced your own dieting habits? What, do you have like a, a basic routine and set of rules that you follow in terms of time-restricted eating and the composition of your diet, whether it's more plant-based or animal-based? I think you've, you've sort of hinted at it along the way, but can you summarize for everyone how you approach dieting and how you think about your strategies? Yeah, and I've had a pretty dramatic <clears throat> change in my dietary habits from when I was a student living primarily on on, on animal products, you know, both, um, and, you know, growing up in, in, in Munich in Southern Germany, this was certainly not the health, the, the, the place for the known for its healthiest diet. Um, and maybe not as much processed meat as you would get here, but, uh, certainly, you know, I was mainly thriving and completely unconscious. I have to say this for the most important thing. I was really living the way that a large number of people live without, having thoughts and, and a conscious awareness of, you know, this whole topic that we have been talking about, you know, where does this food come from as it grown? So then um, I had some, I, I was not trained as a gastroenterologist in any aspect of diet or nutrition, uh, not a single hour. Um, when in my research, my early research was always the brain gut interaction, not really with the microbes and with, uh, the role of, of food in this in this process, but when I wrote my first book, this was uh, the 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 eureka moment. Really, when I got, went through all this literature, and once you start thinking about the microbes, you cannot avoid uh, getting deep into the diet and, and and into nutrition. And with the first book, that was not as extreme as it was the second time, because in the meantime. You know, through the promotion of my book, I got to know and um, 
got to speak, got invited to many places that as a regular gastroenterologist, I would have never encountered before. Audiences, questions um, like the ones we're having right now, you know, in my early career, I would have not had this conversation with you. <clears throat> and, you know, I've, I've met people like um, in regenerative organic agriculture, um, really understanding what that means and how important organic has become in a situation where you recommend a largely plant-based diet. So if it's, if it's not organically grown, you, you consume a vast amount of pesticides and chemicals that are now used to grow these foods. So my awareness has kept increasing about paying attention to it. So today <clears throat> we, we've switched to, you know, a, a largely plant-based diet. I mean, the only meat source is, is fish once a week and, and, and chicken once a week. All the rest is, is, is plant-based. Um, lots of varied fruits and vegetables. Um, and um, also paying a lot of attention. So paying a lot of attention on the labels of food, which in the past I've not really done that much. And also going beyond that, finding out places that sell food that has been grown um, in a regenerative organic way, or at least in an, in an organic way, um, in an environmentally friendly way. Uh, how far away is this being produced? I don't, you know, we used to, just to make sure that we get our blueberries, eat them all year coming from places like Chile. And uh, so we don't do this anymore. So we, you know, have adjusted this to, mainly to locally grown products, which means seasonally adjusted. Um, so it's it's a long process. I, I don't know, you know, certainly on the, in Southern California, there's a lot of consciousness about all these things now. And there's a, a lot of, um, you know, in, 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 in the media, I don't know how widespread that kind of process is really in the general US population. Um, it's it's very prevalent in in Europe. I think um, people ask a lot of these questions. So, pretty a larger portion of the population is is sensitized to to ask these you know many of these questions. But it's it's not it's not simple. I mean, you have to dedicate part of your attentional capacity um, to food that before you would just. You know, when you buy a hamburger, obviously there's no need to think about it, what this does and where it comes from and how many trees have been cut down to, you know, have cheap food, cheap soybeans for the cows that are going to this hamburger. Um, so once you develop this, so this has happened to us. Um, and I think it will, it will increase, you know, it's not, it's not a static thing. I think it's a constant learning process and, um, the, the, the good sides are I, I see progress. So at least in Southern California and the audiences that I uh, interact with, um, I, I hope the word will spread, you know, throughout um, throughout the country and throughout the world. Um, and it's certainly something that I've dedicated a lot of energy with my books, for example, um, which are equally a call to action for um 
uh, you know, environmental health as there are for gut health and gut microbial health. All right. Well, this is a fascinating area. Um, and it sounds like it's a, a fast moving area of research. So you're going to have to write a, a new book every five years. <laughs> um, but very excited to see your new book come out. So remind everyone one more time, the name of your old book, the name of the, name of the new one. So the old one is the mind gut connection. Um, and the new one is the gut immune connection. Um, and as I said, you know, the second one builds on some of the concepts of the first one but with a lot more new science and taking it beyond the gut into the soil, plant health, planetary health, and uh, environment. So I, I'm, it sort of reflects my own process of growth in this area. And I am very excited that this, um, you know, quite honestly, in the beginning, when I thought about writing a second book, the main question was, is there enough space in a very crowded field now of, uh, you know, self-declared uh, microbiome gut health experts, published books? And um, so once I came up with this, with this concept of the one health idea, you know, that, that really energized me. And, and I think something came out that is, is very novel that a lot of people have not really seen and in, in concentrated in one book. Excellent. Well, this is a fascinating area. I'll link to it in the episode description for everyone to find easily. Professor Emeron Mayer, thank you for joining us. Nick, it was a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Really enjoyed it as well.